All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome to... Uh, this is our sixth class in Battles for Israel, Battles for the Soul of Israel, and our fourth of lockdown learning of this week, at least the eighth of lockdown learning altogether. So the topic we're going to be dealing with tonight is specifically regarding Adolf Achman, but more generally the idea of pursuing Nazi Nazi criminals, and I suppose any any person who's got blood, Jewish blood on their hands, and bringing them to trial in Israel. Now, Adolf Eichmann was not only the most uh, famous of these cases, but was the first of the cases of a Nazi criminal being brought to Israel, or you know, brought outside of uh, Nuremberg, or outside of, um, I think, Germany, for, um, for uh, prosecution for the crimes, uh, for war crimes that they committed. And that's what makes his case so particularly unique. So we're going to deal with it. I'll show you a couple of videos beforehand because this is a question that goes up until today. I've been watching a couple of uh, Netflix series of uh, individuals who've been tried in the last, some in the last five, 10 years and some in the last 20 years of people who are 50 years, 60 years after the Shoah and they're still being pursued by you know, Simon Wiesenthal Center and others. And the question of is this a good re use of our resources? So we're going to show a couple of videos. And um, from them we will go on. All right, let's go here. פתאום ב-1960 עולה בן גוריון על במת הכנסת ואומר תפסנו את הפושע הנאצי בצד השני של כדור הארץ והבאנו אותו לארץ למשפט אנשים היו בהלם, בעולם, כן אמרו וואלה איזה ארגון, איזה יכולות כשיצאת לבואנוס הארץ ללכוד את אייכמן, אתה הרגשת שאתה יוצא למבצע היסטורי? בהחלט כן. תראה, ישבנו במערב ליד ביתו, ניגש אליו ואומר לו בספרדית, ממנטיטו סניור, ומוריד אותו בהורדת זדיף. ואז אנחנו מכניסים אותו למכונית. במכונית האיש שתק לאורך כל הדרך. מגיעים לחדר שהוכן עבורו. השאלה הראשונה, מה שמך? וזה אומר, ריקרדו קלמנט. הוא חי בארגנטינה כריקרדו קלמנט. ואז... מספר האס-אס שלך, ועל זה הוא עונה בדיוק את מספר האס-אס שלו. ועכשיו מה שמך? ואז הוא אומר אדולף אייכמן, וכמה שניות יותר מאוחר הוא אומר אני מבקש לשתות, ואם יש יין אדום אני רוצה לשתות יין אדום. לא היה לנו יין אדום. חשבת באיזשהו שלב להרוג אותו? אף פעם לא. ההנחיה הייתה חד משמעי לעשות הכל להביא אותו חי. לא היה מבחינתך איזשהו אלמנט של נקמה? 
מבחינתי לא. לא חשתי נקמה, חשתי גאווה על היכולת. מה זה עשה למוסד מבחינת יחסי הציבור שלו? אין ספק שברגע שהנושא התפרסם, זה יצר את התעודה שלו. אני רק יכול לומר שאני לא חושב שהמוסד אז חיפש יחסי ציבור. זו הייתה יחידה, כלומר גוף מבודד, שעוסק בדברים יותר חשובים. מוסד. Okay, so uh, those are two cases. And the Eichmann one, much more well-known. Demyanok, uh, there's a, a Netflix series called The Devil Next Door, which goes through his case and what exactly happens. And uh, more interest for us this evening is talking about the controversy behind pursuing these Nazi criminals. Now, the question is, like, what's the logic 
you know, why, why would we do such a thing? And isn't it a bit counter to the, you know, general Jewish view on how we deal with uh, criminals and people who've done us badly? So I'm going to go through a few uh, sources as is our bent. And so we'll start over here from a well-known Pasuk in the Pashat Vayikra, in a Pashat, in Pashat, um, Pashat Kedoshim. So in Hebrew it's, Lotikom Velotitorah. You shall not take vengeance. You shall not bear a grudge against your countrymen. Love your fellows. You love yourself. Love the recha kamocha. So seemingly there's this original um, idea that it is prohibited to take revenge. And isn't that at, in the end of the day what we're doing? Taking revenge. So on the one hand, it seems pretty clear that we shouldn't take revenge. On the other hand, if you read the verse quite clearly, it says against your countrymen. That perhaps this is a, a unique mitzvah that is specifically with regards to another Jew. That regarding non-Jews, possibly it is permissible to take revenge. So he has an interesting uh, Talmudic, uh, Talmudic statement that happens. It's based on the, the Megillah. So the story goes in the Megillah that Haman... Um, Goes home and his wife Zeresh says to him, you know, why don't you go get Mordechai hanged on these gallows? They, uh, and uh, that should be the end of the story. So Haman goes to the king and in the meanwhile, the king has uh, not slept at night and he calls in his royal guards and he says, uh, read me the, the Divrayamim, um, read me the chronicles of the king. And they talk about the fact that it was Mordechai and he had done a big favor, he had saved the king's life prior. And uh, Hashverosh says, um, have we ever rewarded him? To which the even says, no, we haven't rewarded him. And at that moment, uh, Haman walks in to tell Achashverosh that he should hang Mordechai. So at that moment, Achashverosh says, oh, Haman, good you're here. Tell me something. What should I do to someone who deserves to be honored? So Haman says to himself, well, who could possibly be want to be honored more than me? So he says to Achashverosh, and this is all in the text. This isn't Medrash. This is all in the text. He says, well, you should do, you should uh, clothe him in uh, garments of the royal garb and you put him on the royal horse and you get someone who's very mukhubad in the community to ride him through the town and say, This is how we honor people uh, the king wants to honor. So Chasherosh says to good, go do that to Mordechai Yudi, go to Mordechai the Jew who's sitting at Shara Melech at the gate. Now, Mordechai at this point in time has been fasting. He told Esther before Esther went to go speak to Hasharosh, I'm going to fast, and they fast for a number of days. So the Gemara now takes us into that story and says, Haman, you know, had taken Mordechai, got him dressed, and he put him in all the clothes, and he said to Haman, no, you've got to get on the horse because I've got to parade you around the town. To which Mordechai says, I'm, I can't, I'm unable, my strength is uh, from all the fasting, I can't get on the horse. So Haman leans over, in order that Mordechai should climb onto him to get onto the horse. So it says, as he's climbing onto the horse, Mordechai kicks Haman. He even pushes him down, kicks him to the ground, whatever he does. So Haman says to him, is it not written, Bin pol al tismach, that when your enemy falls, you should not rejoice? So that is a verse that we, from the, the book of Mishlei. And it's also, um, it's in Perka Avot, that you should never rejoice at their fall of your enemies. So what does Mordechai say? That's regarding Jews. But regarding you is written, you should tread upon their high places. So regarding Gentile Jews. So if you have an enemy, maybe we shouldn't have Jewish enemies, but you've got a Jewish enemy and things are not going his way. So what should you do? You should, uh, you should not celebrate. Someone's business goes mechula, their marriage falls apart, whatever the case might be. You don't, uh, you don't celebrate it. But when uh, you hear of an enemy of Israel that falls, so on the opposite, there's a mitzvah, you know, you should uh, definitely do such a thing. So really we see within the Gomorrah this idea of taking vengeance 
on our enemies is something that we don't have a problem. Now, there is within the Torah itself a unique case. I'm going to just talk, uh, take you inside afterwards, but initially I'll start with it outside. There's a unique case within the Torah where it is completely permissible to take revenge, even to another Jew. It's something very rare. We don't see this idea come up very often, but it is specifically in a case of what's called a rotzach b'shogeg. So the case goes as follows. An individual is out in the field, he's chopping wood, and the, axe of his he- the head of his axe flies off and kills, uh, kills somebody accidentally. So the halacha says in such a case, because it was an accidental murder, it was, there was a certain level of negligence because the axe wasn't done. So it wasn't a complete accident. There was a little bit of negligence, but he definitely wasn't intentional. He, he never had any ill feelings towards this individual. So this individual who's called Rotsayach, He's a murderer, but he's an unintentional murderer. He has to flee to what's called the Aremiklat, to a city of refuge. These were Kohanic cities that were stationed. There were three in Israel and three in the, on the east bank of the Jordan. And he would have to go flee there and live there for a period of time. Now, if he doesn't go, so we come to a concept called the Goel Adam, the Redeemer of the Blood, which is the Redeemer of the Blood is a relative of the deceased who has free reign by Torah law to murder the murderer if he is not in a city of refuge. So Reuven and Shimon are out chopping wood. Reuven accidentally kills Shimon. And Shimon's brother Levi now is permitted to kill Reuven if Reuven is not in a, in a city of refuge. It is called a Goel Adam. Now it does one of two things. The Goel Adam becomes this, literally a city of refuge that when Reuven goes to that city, Levi is not allowed to touch him. He's completely, uh, he cannot do if Ruvain leaves the city, then, his, then it is permissible for Levi to kill him extrajudicially. You do not bring this guy to court. This is, okay. So that is a case that is brought in a number of different places in the Torah. And we'll just see a couple of them. Number one, this is in Dvarim. It also comes in, uh, comes in um, Bamidbar. We see it in Shmot, which we'll see it again. So it says, so set aside three cities in the land the Lord's given you, so that any murderer may have a place to flee. Now, this is the case of a murderer who may flee and live there, one who has killed another unintentionally, without having his enemy, have been his enemy in the past. For instance, a man goes with his neighbor into a grove, cuts wood, and his axe swings, the hand swings the axe to cut on tree, the axe head flies off the handle, strikes the other, so he does. So this is the case I brought. The man shall flee to one of these cities and live. Otherwise, the blood avenger, the Goel Adam, i.e. the relatives of the deceased, pursuing the murder and anger, may pursue him and kill him. Yet he did not incur death penalty. Meaning that the guy who murdered, so Ruvain who killed Shimon, Ruvain is not a murderer. If he gets taken to Beit Din, he's not a murderer. He doesn't get put to death because it was accidental. But since it was accidental, he has to go serve his time in purgatory in the, in the uh, Are Miklat. And why? Because since he's never been the other's enemy. If, however, a person who is the enemy of another lies in wait for him and sets upon him and strikes him in a fatal blow and then flees to one of these towns. So now as a person who is a deliberate murderer, he feigns that it was accident, but he was deliberate. So Reuven and Shimon have deep animosity towards one another and Reuven's head accidentally kills Shimon. The halacha is completely different. He is not allowed to go to Arimiklat. He has to go to Beitin. 
The elders of the town shall have him brought back from there and shall hand him over to the blood avenger be put to death. You must show him no pity. You will purge the Israel of the blood of the innocent and it will go well with you. So we have this obligation. There is this concept in Halacha which seemingly uh, you know, it could go a little bit out of hand. But the idea of being goel adam, of being able to redeem uh, the blood to, um, of, of a, de- a deceased relative in a case of deliberate murder. So the commentaries you know, limit this in a case where either you can't bring him to, to, to din, you can't bring him to justice. But there seems to be at least scope for extrajudicial murders in certain circumstances. So in the Shemot in 21 says, Who fatally strikes a man shall be put to death. But if he did not do it by design, but came about as an act of God, that's the accident, I was only a place we can flee. When a man schemes against another, killed treacherously, should take him from my very altar to be put to death. Meaning, if a person murders another one intentionally, so then you can, even if he's, uh, so to speak, on the altar, meaning he's, he's in the Beit HaMikdash, you can, already from the Beit HaMikdash, you can take him to be murdered. So, all of those laws, as... Um, as uh, interesting as they are, it's very hard if you're going to say we're going to be able to draw, you know, it's a very long bow to draw from uh, the, the Torah law to what we're dealing with today. But at least there's some of the fundamental principles, and this is the way that the commentaries are going to go, is that there is a concept of goel adam. There is a concept of seeking vengeance for murder. Now, what exactly the parameters are remains to be seen, but the concept, at least in principle, exists within the Torah law. The concept of, of not taking revenge doesn't exist in in, uh, in in cases with regards to non-Jews, and it is permissible to exact some level of vengeance. Now, w- one of the things that has never happened in Jewish history, Kim'at, is the ability to do so. So, if you know, you're living at the side times of the Crusades, so and, and you knew there was a local crusader who had murdered members of your family, so, you know, what are you going to do about it? You know, you just, we didn't have any power. It's, it's, it's when you're a powerless people, the idea of exacting vengeance almost, you know, it's, it's completely unheard. It never, never happens. So you have to be in a point of power that you could do such a thing. So that's the situation we get now and, and how we're going to deal with it. All right. So let's get back into our sheets. All right. Uh, okay. So a couple of considerations I wanted to raise, and I thought these are ones that will be dealt with um, by the commentaries. It's first and foremost, we have to say, halachically, is the person responsible? So what I mean by is the person responsible? So when you're going to bring a Nazi walker, so if we look at these two individuals, let's just say Eichmann and Demyanuk, the two people we saw in the video, Eichmann was giving the orders and Demyanuk was following the orders. So who's responsible in this particular? So if you look at it from a halachic point of view, you know, the guy giving the orders or the guy actually carrying out the orders. So the idea that I was just following orders is a, is a, is a defensive claim that we've heard, you know, throughout uh, Nuremberg and, uh, and subsequently. But from a halachic point of view, does that, that, does that concept actually exist? Can you say, you know, I was just following orders? On the, uh, that would be Demyanok 6. He denied that he was the person, but let's just say he was an article. He says, what do I do? I was following orders. I have to follow orders. On the flip side, what could uh, Eichmann's claim be? His claim would be, I didn't actually kill anyone. It's not, I mean, Hitler did a hell of a lot of bad stuff, but did Hitler actually kill anyone with his own hands? Did he shoot anyone, strangle anyone, drown it? Like, I don't know. But let's just say for argument he didn't, that Achman actually never killed anyone. Signed the death warrants of six million people, but never killed anyone himself. 
So what's the halacha? So this concept, you know, it does exist within the, the halacha realm. And this is, comes in Masechah Kiddush. And I didn't bring this in source because I thought this was going to get a bit too, a bit too technical. And it's concept, the halachic concept is, Im yesh sheliach ledavar avera. Can you be in a misery for, to do an avera? So for example, every Friday night, um, you go to a Shabbos table and usually one person makes Kiddush on behalf of everybody else. So what is it? So that person who's making Kiddush is the sheliach. He's the emissary of everybody else there. Everyone there, you've got 10 people at the table, all 10 people are obligated to make Kiddush. But they're not going to have 10 people making Kiddush. So what we do is we get one person to make Kiddush, and he does it on behalf of the rest of us, and we all fulfill the mitzvah. That's called shlichut. That's called uh, creating a, a, a mission or a missionary, uh, a misery that do the mitzvah on your behalf. What about the opposite? What happens if I say to someone, I want you to go rob the bank. So I want you to go shoplift at Coles for me. And bring me back the chocolate. So, when he does, he steals the chocolate and brings it back to me. Who's the thief? Is he the thief or my other thief? With regards to the mitzvah, he can do a mitzvah on my behalf. Even if he's not obligated to so say he's made kiddush for me. So, let's say he's already made kiddush. So, he makes kiddush again for me. So, I fulfill the mitzvah of kiddush that he's doing. So, maybe same with Avairas. He's doing the Avaira, so, but I, because I'm the one who sent him, so it's my Avaira. Do we say that or not? So, general rule is we say, ain't shaliach Avaira. There is, you cannot uh, be a shaliach ladavaravera. You cannot send an emissary to do an avaira. Why? Because there's a concept called divrei harav, divrei atalmi, divrei mishomim. You've got the words of the rabbi and the words of the student. Who do you listen to? And the way that that uh, plays out is that Hashem tells you not to murder. And uh, this guy told you to murder. So you're going to listen to Hashem or you're going to listen to this guy? So you listen to the guy. You should have listened to Hashem. So you can't say that the mishaleach, the sender, is... Uh, you know, the guy giving the orders is uh, liable because you shouldn't have listened to the orders. And since you listen to the orders, you're liable. So that, would, that works with Demaniuk. So he was following the orders. He shouldn't have listened to the orders. He listened to Hashem. He didn't listen to it. So he's, he's liable. On the flip side, well, then it sounds like Achman's off. You know, uh, is off. So there they want to say opposite. Opposite logic. And they're going to use both logics. The opposite logic is the fact that when do we say that you listen to the rabbi, you listen to the student, you should always listen to the rabbi, that, that uh, you should have listened to Hashem. That is in a case where a person had a choice. So when people have choices, so if I give an order to someone to go rob a bank or steal from Coles, so they can say, no, I'm not going to do that. But if you, Adolf uh, Eichmann, and you tell some you know, Polish-Hungarian peasant to do something, and if not... If he doesn't, you know, do the crime, he's going to be a victim. So then do you really have choice in such a matter? So the Mishalach, in such a case, even the guy who sends the, even the guy who sends the, 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 the person to do the Avaira is liable. And we see that with David Amelech. So David Amelech, um, in the story of Bathsheba, that he, he really fancies Bathsheba. Bathsheba was a married woman. And so what he did is he took Bathsheba's husband and he sent him to the front lines. And he gave orders to the chief of staff that when you attack, I want you all to run up. And then as Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, gets close, I want you all to fall back so you'll be killed. And he goes and he falls back and he gets killed. And the prophet Natan comes to David and says, you're a murderer. So it's the exact same thing. David and Melech didn't, uh, didn't murder Uriah, but he's considered the murderer because he's the individual whose authority could not be um, discounted. 
And since that was the case, he too was, uh, he was considered liable. All right, so that's um, as far as are these people responsible. So, I mean, again, with the Demiano case, it's not clear, from, at least from his point of view, whether he was the right criminal. So I watched the, the series. It was a fascinating series. And um, even when you watch it, so w- what happened with his story is he was expedited to, to Israel. They had a long, long court case, number of years court case. The original court case, the, uh, the, the court in Israel found him guilty and sentenced to death, that he was Ivan Terrible. On appeal, the uh, High Court of Israel overruled and said he was not uh, Ivan the Terrible and released him and he went back to America. And then Germany expedited him because accused him not of being Ivan the Terrible, but, but being a, a, a prison guard at uh, Sobibor. And then he was found guilty there. And during his appeal over there, he died. So, so whether he was Ivan the Terrible or not, it's very hard. And it's a fascinating story because you, when you're watching it, you're not quite sure. Is it, he clearly wasn't a good guy. The question was, he Ivan the Terrible or not? That's, that's unclear. So we, so we have all these cases and there's a lot of studies being done on memory, especially now we're talking, you know, 70 plus years later that it's, it's not always clear that memory is a very good, like, the survivors, you know, it's not always clear that, that not, even, and we're not talking about dimensions, that we have the ability over time to create memories in our minds. The things we think to be true, we can, you know, we can create memories. I mean, I have, I've had fascinating people who remember being at school with me when I know for a fact that they weren't at school with me. They say, oh, do you remember, you know, I remember you from King David when you were in Form 1 and I was in matric. And I was like, yeah, fascinating. The only problem is I wasn't at King David in Form 1. I only went in Standard 9. So I was like, but he's convinced he was at school with me. So uh, who am I to tell him that I, but he wasn't? But in his mind, this is a, he'll swear that he was at school with me. Okay, so that exists. And so it becomes very, very difficult to ascertain whether or to. But let's, let's deal with the assessment that we're going to go now with that Adolf Achman, because this is the case, that Adolf Achman, he was, uh, he was who he was. And now it becomes the halakhic question of can we, um, can we, uh, take, can we uh, punish him? Can we uh, put him to death? Can we? Though? So here we've got two more questions. Is, what's the rationale? Are we, are we trying to do something that is uh, illegal, that we are trying to argue legally from a legal point of view, I mean a halakhic point of view, that we are trying to say halakhically this guy, you know, Elof Achman, is to be put to death by Torah law? Or we say, no, it's not a halachic argument. It's what you call a meta-halachic argument. A meta-halachic argument, or what you would talk in the, uh, I suppose in layman's terms, you would say it's, it's politics. That we're doing this not because it's the law, but because of the messaging that it sends is more important. I mean, it's not the crime per se that you are punishment, but it's the deterrent factor. And that goes in the second one. It's like, what is our goal here? It's our goal to administer justice, that you murdered uh, six million Jews, and therefore you deserve to be put to death. Or we saying that uh, you know uh, we we want to ensure that people who perpetrate crimes against the Jewish people should never get away with it. Not because we are trying to administer justice. Justice is for Hashem, but we're trying to show people that when you take out, when you attack the Jewish community, you will never get away with it. And you might, you know, when you are sleeping in your 60, 70 years. You know, after the atrocity, don't sleep well because we are going to find you and get you. So what is the motivation over here? Is the motivation one of, of, of vengeance and justice? We are trying to bring justice to the world. Or is the motivation 
um, to send a strong message. And I suppose the big nafka between it is like, you want to get a 90-year-old guy. So there's another Netflix show, I think it's just gone off, called The Account of Auschwitz. And he has a guy who's very happy to admit that his job was when um, when everybody came um, to Auschwitz, he had to dispossess the Jews of their possessions and rummage through them and, and do an accounting and make sure he had the um, all the right figures of everything that was being looted from the Jews. And now he was in his 90s and he's being brought to you know court in Germany and he, he admitted you know he admitted everything that he had done but the question is like really are we are we going to put this guy in jail or we like he's in his 90s this is something that happened 70 years ago when he was in his 20s i mean do we do we just pursue people for the sake of pursuing it or do we say listen we need to send a message so it's is it really a justice thing or not okay so, we're going to deal with uh, a couple of different responses. So, firstly, Rabbi Ephraim Oshri. So, this is one of the um, most fascinating and most frightening works that uh, I've ever had the um, experience of learning. So, Rabbi Ephraim Oshri was the, was the rabbi of the Kovna Ghetto. And this is the legend. And uh, there's a lot of controversy about whether this legend is true or not. But, so he was the rabbi of the Kovna Ghetto. And he wrote down all the questions he was asked in the ghetto from, uh, and, and beyond. And he wrote them all and he hid them in a jar or a, or a barrel or something. And they dug it under the ground in Kovna. And post the war, he went back. They uh, unearthed all these responses and uh, printed them in a, I think, four or five set response called Mimama Kim. And Mimama Kim... It's a famous, uh, it's a word from a famous psalm that we say between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Mimama kim karatich Hashem. Hashem, I call to you from the depths. So this is uh, the question's response from the depths. And this is the question he's asked. This is a post-war question. Is there an obligation to search out the murder of one's parents? In order to avenge the blood of the of the blood that has been spilt, and to spend money for the purpose of doing so. So it's one thing to say we've got to do it. Like this is going to cost money to you know to extradite these people and to search out from this uh, operation finale, which is the uh, the Achman, uh, you know, the capture and taking Achman out of uh, out of Argentina. It costs a lot of money to do these things. There's, I've read, uh, I've read a number of books of where you see what the Mossad did and, and certain other, you know, um, um, cases where they went and, and hunted down uh, Nazis. So this idea is something that is going to cost a lot of money. So do you have to do it? So here's the question. After the liberation, when you go in from the darkness into great light, so uh, a man approached me. Oh, just need to get a search. Just need to somewhere. Okay, sorry. Uh, so a man approached me. And he told me that his parents his siblings had been murdered by a particular Lithuanian murderer. There was a... 
who got it over the place where his family were living. And now this man, this murderer, lives in the city called Marapal. Is the am I obligated to spend a lot of money, to spend money, to get him and to bring him to justice? And to, accord, and to punish him according to his deeds. According to the laws of the land. In order that all haters of Israel should hear and see and fear. The law you see for and should never do this again. So, do I have to spend all this money to go do it to him? So, says Rav Shrei Mashri. So, I'm not sure what you would think you do. So, it says, So, the Tzemach Tzedek, I'm pretty sure this is the Tzemach Tzedek, because I think the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he says as follows, he brings the following thing. One is obligated, one is forces the close relatives of a, of a murdered individual. That they should pursue the murderer. And to bring him to justice, even if the murderer wasn't Jewish. So, how close does a relative have to be to be considered a relative to have to persist? Even if he's not one of the seven relatives have to mourn, I mean, it doesn't have to be the immediate family. Anyone could do it. says, but I don't believe you have to pay more than acceptable in giving bribes and the like to the different judges. Because if we, if we say you have to spend every cent you've got, no one's going to do it. He says, but we got, so if, if he doesn't have enough money, you can draw on communal funds. We spoke about this last week in Redeeming Captives. Why? And the poor, I underline this. That they should chaz for shalom, that the blood of Jews should not be hefka. Hefka is a term means ownerless. It is free. You know, we're, gonna, we're about to go into the sabbatical year and all the fruit is hefka. Anyone can go into the field and take it. You don't have to ask permission. You can just go into any field, any field in Israel next year and eat from the fruit free of charge. That is what hefka is. When it was in yeshiva, Lost property had a certain uh, timeline on it, after which it became hefka. So, for example, if you uh, you know if you put your stuff on the council pickup, you put stuff on council pickup, it's hefka. Anyone can come and pick it up. You know it doesn't have. So if I go past you and I see you got like a nice I don't know, garden chair that you you waiting for council pickup, so I can pick it up because it's hefka. So he says yeah, it God forbid people should think that the blood of Jews is hefka. That's free for. And says, and even when 
people knew that there was no chance that they would ever bring this this murderer to justice, they still spent money trying to pursue him. So the Torah says, even if you don't succeed, the chasing of itself is valuable because you're showing people that you cannot get away with this. And even if he does get away with it, other people will learn that Jewish blood is not free. You will pay for it. If you take Jewish blood, you will, you will have to pay for it. So that's the Tzemach Tzedek, writing in, if I'm not mistaken, the early 1800s. So says Rav Oshi, carrying on. And, it, and I would like to suggest that in our times, we need to be very calculating and careful with this. Because the last thing we want to do is create more hatred of Israel. Now, pursuing the wrong person, or even in cases, we have to, we have to really weigh up the, the pros and cons in a particular case. If there's a 95-year-old man and we're going to pursue him because he swept the floors of the dungeons, um, and even though he wasn't part of the, you know, the, mach- the Nazi war machine, but he, he worked in Auschwitz. So we're going to pursue him. We have to ask ourselves the question, what is, how is this going to view the rest of the Jewish community? Are we going to be viewed as a vengeful, hateful people that anyone who was a member of the Nazi party should, you should be hanged at the gallows? So you go that far, it's going to undermine the, the, the goal. But the last thing we should be is apathetic towards this. We should do everything in our power to expose those murders who spilled blood of Israel. And they should be known, named and shamed in public that everyone should know their true identity. Because what did they do when Achman went down to, uh, to Argentina? He wasn't known as Achman anymore. The least we should do is everyone should know this is Adolf Eichmann. This is the murderer. So I told this guy who came to ask me the question, he should not be silent. So I told him that he should do everything in his power to take vengeance on this family, or take vengeance for his family on this from this murderer, and to bring him to justice. And do everything in his power to bring this guy to justice. There is a postscript, which uh, was quite confronting. Uh, it was interesting. I didn't bring the postscript in the sheet. So what the guy comes back to Rav Ashi and says what he did is he went to this guy's house and he was in there with his family and he threw a hand grenade in and killed this guy and his family. And he ran back to Rav Ashri and he said, what should I do now? And Rav Ashri, he this was in Lithuania, he said, you should go to Poland. And he went to Poland and eventually went to Eretz Yisrael. So that's what landed up happening. But it's, but it's clear from Rav Ashri that, that you got to do it. And that's, you know, there's, there are a number of uh, Rav Moshe Tzvi in Iria, who was uh, one of the, he was the Rav in a place called Karpines in, uh, in, in, in Israel. He was, uh, he was the founder of B'nai Akiva. And he wrote a very lengthy article in 1961 in the aftermath of this whole thing about halakhically how we're obligated to do such a thing. But you hear what the argument is. This is not about justice. And that's the key that's happening here. This has got nothing to the justice. Now, this is another article by a guy named Rav Yosef Engel. This is also, this is early, I think, 1700s. It says, and it's got to do with the ideas of, uh, 
you know, dealing with the murders. It says, And then furthermore, we should take vengeance. Obviously, he's not talking about our case, but uh, you should take vengeance. So that never should, it should never be done again. And you shouldn't come to think that people should be able to do this and get away with it. You should never have that situation. So, so there's a logic over here. So I, when you, I, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, who's the, um, Simon Wiesenthal was a noted Nazi hunter. And, and, and the logic, if I'm not mistaken, is the logic that, that is used very much with it. It's not about bringing people to justice. In Judaism, we don't believe in justice. Be I just, I think that's, even though it says, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, um, you should surely pursue justice. That is really guarding monetary laws, not so much with regards to murder. You, how do you bring justice? If someone kills somebody else, how do you give justice? It's like you, you can't bring that person back and you put them to death. Like, how, how can you do such a thing? So then comes to the next question. And this is a question which is a lot harder to argue. And that is, so in Israel's history, only one criminal that has been tried in, in the court system has been put to death. That was very uh, wordy there. Because I mean, many people have been assassinated by, by the IDF, but never of them have come through the uh, court system. There's never been a death penalty administered by the state except for Adolf, Adolf Eichmann. So the question is, is, from a lucky point of view, what is the view on the death penalty? The Gomorrah comes and says, any baked in that murdered one person every seven years, 70 years, 700 years, as different opinions, was considered a murderous baked in. Um, death penalty is definitely something that we, we shy away from at every uh, point possible. That being said, is again, that's with regards to Jews. But in certain circumstances, maybe it'd be permissible to have the death penalty in this situation. Um, I didn't find a lot of halachic literature on it. I only found Rav Niria and another couple of other um, things who all have argued in favor of the death penalty. But I did find another interesting letter, which, um, which is, so this comes, this is written the 30th of May, uh, May 1962. So this is Lichvod Hod Malaton So it's written to the president of uh, of the country, Yitzhak Ben Svi. Now it's not the greatest quality, but in essence, he says, Adum of Nafsho, we are this is regarding Avachman, we are writing and uh, and 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 ask him to spare his life. And we know there's no one less deserving of mercy than him. And don't think for a second we're coming to say, be merciful for him because we, we, we think he's a good guy. That's not. We say don't put him to death for our sake. For our, our, our country, our land and our people. Um uh, says if you allow Achman to be put to death, you know what's gonna do? It's gonna diminish the whole image of the Shoah. Not sure what that's sorry, this is not clear. It says you're gonna diminish the severity of the cause. And anorotsim shot sorry, yeah, view la karshana mid 
Talim. In essence, what they're going to say is that we're going to become like them. If we're going to hang people that we, that we don't like because we say they're murderers, well, that's what they did to us. They said that we were vermin and we were destroying the German nation and we should be hanged. So if we hang, hang them, they were doing exactly the same. It's, it's beneath us to hang these people. Not that they're not deserving of death. They're deserving of death. But we, we, who are we to do that? We're going to become. So I haven't seen anyone says, who are we um, to, to kill someone? You know, what right? Hashem can kill people. We can't kill people. I didn't see that. But I did find all the interesting notaries, and I, I circled it here. So Professor Mordechai Martin Buber. So for those who know Martin Buber, so he's one, the only secretary that I recognize. Martin Buber is the notice philosopher who is based out of uh, New York, a very well-known Jewish philosopher. Um, and he, he wrote in protest to it. So with it, within the Jewish world, at least in the, um, in, in the Achman case, there was very little sympathy and no one, uh, there was no protest. So whereas in a lot of the other arguments, like last week we talked about, you know, to give up people, to not give up people for Gilad Shalit and, and so on and so forth. There are a lot of arguments. In this particular, in the Abu Achman case, there were no real protests against it. Like everyone thought there was, this was a good idea. But the halachic argument came very much of the idea, not that we're trying to bring people to justice, and that's the key. We cannot bring people to justice, but we can send a very strong message that if you, you attack Jews, you won't get away with it. And that's uh, seemingly what's happened under Yomazeh, and uh, becomes an interesting question. So should we per- still be pursuing, I mean, there, there are very few Nazi criminals left. I mean, we're 70 plus years for a Nazi to actually have committed a, a crime and to still be alive today, you'd have to be in his, I don't know, mid to late 90s, one would imagine. Is it still worth pursuing such people? So that's a, that's a, that's an interesting question of itself. Um, but it has been a question for the last 20, 30 years. Is this the best use of our resources? We have limited resources. I think this is another question that, uh, which is similar but different is, um, should we be spending money and sending people to uh, to Poland to go to the camps? Is that a good use of uh, Jewish money? If you've got uh, money to send people overseas, perhaps you should be sending them for Jewish education. Send them to spend more time in Israel, spend more time on Yeshivot, spend less time on atrocities of the past, and then and, and never never forget to give people something to remember. And uh, so that's an argument that uh, can be uh, still uh, argued today. But anyway, that, uh, that ends the presentation for this evening. I'll just allow you to unmute yourself if anyone has any questions.